Clients are going to expect that attorneys are going to be benefiting or going to take advantage of the efficiencies that AI uses. And so an attorney, a law firm that doesn't use those is going to be at a competitive disadvantage. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, artificial intelligence has become one of the most discussed topics of our day. With the introduction of sophisticated chatbots like OpenAI's ChatGPT 3.5 and ChatGPT 4, many have predicted that we're on the verge of a revolution in terms of how many industries operate, including the legal industry. So what do firms and attorneys need to do to stay ahead of the incoming AI wave? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss AI and the law, the impact, and what the future holds for the profession under this new AI revolution. To help us better understand this issue, we're joined by John D. Villasenor. He is the professor of electrical engineering, law, public policy, and management at UCLA School of Law. And he's the faculty co-director of the UCLA Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He recently wrote a piece for Brookings Institutions titled, How AI Will Revolutionize the Practice of Law. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks very much for having me. Well, how did you first become interested in artificial intelligence? Well, my background is actually uh, in technology. Um, so I'm, uh, while I am on the faculty at the UCLA School of Law, my degree is a PhD in engineering. And I've long worked in the technological side of things. And in the last decade or so, I've also been uh, working at the intersection of technology and law. And AI is uh, has it's a longstanding interest of mine, and um, I'm particularly interested in the ways that technology has these broader impacts in society. And it's hard hard to think of a technology uh, that's going to have more of an impact on society uh, than AI, AI will in, in the coming years. So it's really a fascinating and important topic. Can you explain what AI is for people that have never heard of it and don't understand what it is? It's a, it's a really important question because the term is th thrown around so often these days. Um, but basically, uh, and you can find different definitions if you, if you uh, look, for example, on the internet. Uh, but basically, you can think of AI as computer systems that, that have the capacity to learn and to engage in the kind of uh, complex observations of the environment and responding to the information obtained from the observations to modify their behavior. So uh, a calculator on a smartphone that just multiplies two numbers together, that's, that's very fast. Uh, it's much faster than a person, but it's not intelligent. It's not learning. It's not getting better at that task as you do it more and more. Whereas an AI system will generally learn from the data, from its experiences, and become better at executing whatever task it's supposed to be doing. What is it that allows a computer to learn? Well, it's a combination of things. One, one thing is data. A computer, if, it, if it's properly programmed and it encounters a lot of data, uh, then it can start adapting its behavior to the data. A, a simple example that I think many listeners will be familiar with is something like Amazon, which will recommend purchases, or Netflix, which will recommend TV shows or movies that you might want to watch. And, and what it does is it has seen, for example, in the case of Netflix, the type of, of content you watch in the past. And so it learns, for example, that maybe you like sports or you like action movies. 
And based on that previous behavior it observes about you, it then starts providing you with suggestions that it believes are great. concluded correctly or incorrectly are more aligned with, with your interests. So we've heard about GPT-4, and so consequently there's probably a GPT-3 and a GPT-2. How long has AI been really developing? Well, yeah, the, if you really go back to the origin of it all, you know, you can go back to Alan Turing, who uh, back in, you know, in the 1950s was asking the questions of, can a machine think? Can a computer think? And AI research has been, you know, quite active it's really since, you know, the, the mid-20th century. You know, it's been, you know, growing, obviously, not, not as much in the mid-20th, I'm sorry, not as much in the mid-20th century and more as we get to the end of the 20, 20th century. But we've seen an absolute, you know, hockey stick, you know, increase in the last, you know, two decades. And that's largely because the capacity, our computing capacity, the ability to have enormous amounts of storage, enormous amounts of data, and enormous processing power, that's all just gone through the roof in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, and, and particularly in the last, say, five years. And that's what's allowed this field to really take off and have an impact that it never had in the 20th century. So there are some examples of that you've put in your article in the Brookings Institute that you think that AI can be used for discovery and writing briefs and doing research in law. How does that work? So I think it, what's, what's important to underscore, I think, is that the newest AI, the things that have been in the news so much and that you know, people have seen examples of on in various publications, the newest generation of these large language model tools are truly uh, a departure. They're truly different from, from the kind of technology, labor-saving uh, tools that lawyers may have had in the past, right? And so, of course, things like digitizing data, the ability to, to, store, to store data digitally and look through the data and to search through it. I mean, that obviously revolutionized how everybody, including attorneys, interact, interact with documents. But with these large language models, the AI, now we have AI, and that's capable of producing output that until now required a human to do. It was its creative output. Uh, the tools before, you know, for example, like digital search, they did stuff very fast, but it, it's, it wasn't creative. And so what you see now is these tools being able to do creative tasks that lawyers engage in and to you know, help, help them do those tasks, for example, much faster than before. And I can, talk, I can provide examples of how it could be used in discovery if you'd like, but, but at a high level, it can do you know, tasks that before now would have required a human to do. So essentially, if you get a truckload of documents in an e-discovery response, you can upload those to a, a, a language model and then have that language model analyze the, those documents? You can. Now, how good that analysis will be is, is an open question. I think it's important when we talk about this to distinguish between you know, today's technology, which is extraordinary relative to what we had five or 10 years ago, but is really... It's in its infancy compared to what we're going to have five or ten years from now, right? So, you know, I, I can you, know, you can analogize. Some of your readers may be old enough to remember the first internet browsers in the mid 1990s, and you know, we all thought that was. I'm old enough to remember that, and we all thought that was really amazing. But of course, that was nothing compared to you know the, the, the internet that we now have today. So today, you know, these tools are probably nowhere near as mature as they're going to be. But I, I think in the not too distant future, yes, you will be able to have the proverbial truckload of documents and you'll be able to basically feed it to an AI system and have it perform analysis. Now, that doesn't mean you just 
push a button. You're going to have to know how to use these systems, you know, the, what queries to give it, what instructions to give it, how to know whether, you know, it may have missed something. And so, you know, it's, it's not as simple as sitting back and pushing a button, but these tools will be able to do in extraordinary fast timeframes, things that might've taken, you know, a team of attorneys, you know, weeks before to do. In my uses of AI, I use a language model myself, uh, chat GPT-4 at this point, and it pretty regularly gives me misinformation and sometimes it makes things up. How reliable is AI at this point? Well, there's a, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, certainly there's plenty of examples, uh, including the ones that you're citing, where these language models can give information which just isn't true. And, you know, so uh, obviously it, it would be foolish given today's technology for anybody to assume that the outputs of these models are, you know, what they say is necessarily true and you, you need to do diligence. I also think that we shouldn't mistake the unreliability to the extent that it exists in some of the current models with something inherent to AI, right? If you just, if you look at the difference between, you know, the original chat GPT release back in November, which I, I may be wrong, but I think that was based on uh, what some people call GPT 3.5 and uh, GPT 4, which is the, the version that just got released, you know, in the last few weeks, already there's a enormous, enormous improvement. I think GPT-4 easily passes, you know, a bar exam and, you know, nails the GRE, you know, uh, verbal you know, you know, writing section and you know, does great on standardized tests, much better than ChatGPT's original uh, release did. And so I would expect that as these models grow in sophistication, they will also grow in reliability. Although I would also say never to the point where it, it's always going to be a bad idea to blindly trust these on assertions that may or may not may may not be true. Right. I found that the research skills that I've developed as a lawyer over my career come in really handy when I try to develop prompts for the research that I'm doing. And I found that the results need to be checked, but are usually pretty good. Yeah, that, I think and I think that's a really good way. And that's again, this is a snapshot of today's technology. And you know, six months from now it's gonna be different. But even today, I think it's I think that's the right way to characterize it. Like pretty good. You can't completely trust it, but but really it can save you a significant amount of time. And so even if, you know, even if 10% of it isn't good, well, the 90% of it that is good can save you, you know, quite a bit of time. John, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. 
Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Professor John Villasenor. He is the co-director of the UCLA Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy. We've been talking about artificial intelligence and its development. But today, the day that we're recording this, a letter got sent out by a bunch of tech hounds, I'm going to call them, I guess, asking for a pause in the development of AI. What's that about? Well, the signatories of this letter believe that these large language models and the, and the training of these systems is proceeding so quickly that it's really getting ahead of of our ability to, to understand their behavior and they're concerned that that these are this is raising risks that are best addressed by basically taking our foot off the gas and you know, giving it a pause and um, you know, thinking about the sort of proper frameworks, potentially regulatory frameworks and, and otherwise to put around these. Now, not, not everyone you know, agrees that that's the right approach, but that, as, as I understand it, that is the gist of, of the, the letter. What do we have to fear? Well, there's no question that AI, like so many other technologies, can be used for malicious purposes. And you could you can go analogize it to the internet in some ways, right? I mean, the internet has all sorts of extraordinarily positive benefits that we all know well. And the internet also has opened the door to uh, all sorts of negative uses like propagation of misinformation and you know financial, financial crimes committed with the aid of using the internet and so on. So um, th- there, there are legitimate concerns about uh, potentially malicious uh, or unintended consequences of AI systems. At the same time, there's also extraordinary benefit. And again, this is like like many technologies. Right. Well, we've heard that there have been some deep fake issues, that there has been an instance where uh, President Macron in France was uh, seen on a video supposedly bashing his own programs, and uh, same has been true for uh, President Biden. What safeguards are in place to protect us from these things? You know, it's it's going to be a fact of of living in the 21st century, or at least the 21st century, you know, in the 2020s and beyond, that the technology to create deep fakes is out there. We all grew up in an era where if you see something on video, uh, you could be confident that it that it actually happened, or pretty confident anyway. And and that era is, has ended. It cuts both ways, right? In the sense that it it the fact is that when we see something on video, we are going to have to ask the question, you know, how confident are we that this is depicting something that actually happened or whether, it's, you know, or maybe it's a deep fake. And it goes in the other direction, in the sense that when something really does happen and is captured on video, let's say a politician is captured on video actually saying something, you know, highly problematic, you know, then that, then the politician might deny having said it and say it's a deep fake. And, and it, you know, it, it can create confusion in both, both directions. So it's a, it's a challenge. There are technologies out there that, uh, to varying degrees, can try to detect these things. But it's a bit of an arms race, right? The, the detection technology improves, but then so does the technology for evading the detection. And I expect that pattern to continue. Well, initially, you know, Google did not put out an AI and it didn't release it because it had some fears that it expressed kind of outwardly about the validity of AI. But then Microsoft put it out and ChatGPT came out and now we've got BARD. So... Are we moving too fast? You know, it's, I guess, you know, it's, we'll have to wait, wait a little while before we, you know, con- conclude definitively whether it's too fast. I mean, the, the glass half empty way to look at it is that, you know, this is too fast and we're arguably engaging in developing a technology of which the ramifications are, are 
but that we don't really fully understand the ramifications. You know, the glass half full way to look at it is that the level of progress and investment that is going on in this space currently is truly extraordinary. And we are every day becoming closer to unlocking some of the extraordinary potential of AI. You know, I'll just give one example, you know, drug discovery. AI can be used to do solve very complex protein folding problems, which in turn ties directly to dr- drug development. And so there's the, and, you know, another example is there's been documentation of AI using AI to identify in medical images uh, tumors that uh, human radiologists don't necessarily always catch. And so there's a, you know, on the one hand, we we don't want to, proceed carelessly and then end up creating negative effects that are, you know, a problem. On the other hand, we don't want to hold back so much that we then delay access to new drugs, better medical diagnosis techniques, and the many other benefits that AI is going to bring. And so there is a tension there. uh, And I don't know that anyone has the perfect answer on how to resolve that. You know, the letter that we talked about earlier says that it's going to apply to the Federal Trade Commission and ask for regulations to be put into place. In your opinion, do we need regulations in place, laws? And if so, where should we start? Yeah, so I, I'm I hesitant to just say, you know, regulate, you know, without being more specific. And I think it's important to underscore a couple of things. First of all, while some of these technologies are new, there is already a lot of regulation that nonetheless applies. So I'll just give an example. Let's suppose a bank uses an AI system to make decisions on loan applications and those loan applications, those decisions end up being biased against a protected class, biased based on, say, race or gender or something like that. Well, of course, that would violate the Fair Housing Act, right? So the Fair Housing Act, although it was enacted, obviously, without specifically thinking about you know, with AI in mind, it would still apply if an AI system is used in a manner that violates the Fair Housing Act. So if you look at across these different domains, I think you could, you find that there's a lot of law and regulation in place already that can address some of the, the negative potential consequences of AI. So I think the better question to ask is, well, what other negative possible consequences are there of, there, are there of AI that aren't, that fall outside the regulatory framework to the extent that a framework is necessary to address them? And, and to, if we can identify a set of these things, then you know it's, it's, a, it's a sensible thing to at least discuss uh, regulation. The other thing I'd like to say, if I may, is that regulating in the tech space is is particularly complicated because there's always the risk of unintended consequences in the sense that you can, you know, enact or draft a regulation or enact a new law that targets a particular concern that you have. And and maybe it does a reasonable job at at addressing that concern, but it, it can create collateral damage in other ways. And I think that's really important to keep in mind always when regulating the tech space and particularly in the, in relation to AI. That and the regulations seem to be outdated almost as soon as they're issued. You know, it's it is a it is a real challenge. On the flip side, when when you know Congress tries to sort of get ahead of things with regulation, that can go sideways as well. A, a brief anecdote: in 1986, Congress enacted the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which, among other things, provided that emails stored more than six months are far less protected from a privacy standpoint than emails stored less than six months. And the logic was, well, back in the mid-1980s, you, who, who would store emails for very long because you were going to run out of storage space? And that, that law is still on the books. And so, you know, there, that just it's an interesting example of how, you know, trying to regulate to a particular point in time uh, can, can you know, end up being hopelessly outdated. And you might think, oh, well, you know, Congress can just fix the law, but, you know, Congress hasn't fixed that law and it's we're coming up, coming up on 40 years. <laughs> it's, that's a real problem. 
So let's talk about how attorneys use AI. I mean, should attorneys start to use AI? Are there any ethical considerations? Do we need to disclose to the client that we're using AI? Well, a couple of things. AI is obviously a broad term, and there are going to be good AI tools and not so good AI tools. So, uh, of course, it's going to be always important to use any of these tools in a manner that honors any of the confidentiality restrictions that might you know, be associated with, with the information that's being you know, provided to these tools. So that's, you know, that's, you know, you don't want to take, you know, confidential client data and, you know, basically, you know, paste it into a window that's just being, you know, un- gathered by some, you know, entity that you have, you know, no relationship or confidentiality with. So there's those sorts of issues. I think there's a balance here. I don't think attorneys should sort of assume that AI is going to do everything they've done before much better, because I don't think that's true. Uh, but I also think it would be a mistake to assume that AI doesn't have a role in the modern practice of law. I think especially as the technology develops, it's going to be a time-saving tool that is beneficial to the attorney because the attorney can get produce an end product like a, you know, like a motion to file with the court or a document to uh, update a client on the status of a legal matter or a new contract. It's going to be able to help the attorney do those things a lot faster, a lot more efficiently. And clients are going to expect that. Right, clients are going to expect that attorneys are going to be benefiting or going to take advantage of the efficiencies that AI uses, and so an attorney, a law firm that doesn't use those, is going to be at a competitive disadvantage. Well, John, it's time to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer Lawyer. I'm back with John Villasenor. He's a professor at UCLA Law and Technology. We've been talking about AI and how attorneys use AI. Let's talk about copyright issues and plagiarism. Anything to worry about there? Yeah, uh, there is. It's it's a I mean it's a complicated issue. Um, as some of your listeners may know, there's actually some lawsuits ongoing right now in relation to uh, images. There's some AI systems that can generate images. You, know, you can give it a prompt like you know um, you know p- portray a picture of you know, two cats playing chess and things like that, and it produces these really interesting photorealistic images. And so there's some lawsuits right now from companies, I believe Getty is a plaintiff in one of the lawsuits, Getty Images, and basically alleging that the makers of the of at least one of these image-producing AI systems violated copyright by basically using their images as training data for that process. So, so there, there are there are 
interesting, open legal questions with respect to, and they're not resolved. The courts have never addressed these before. And, and you know, statutory law is, is, is silent, really. Um, the question is really a question of what, what constitutes fair use. And, and of course, the case law on fair use doesn't give us a definitive answer to these questions. So I think copyright, copyright is important. You know, plagiarism, obviously, you, you don't want to, you, you don't want to plagiarize, you know, another attorney's work. At the same time, it's often very common for, you know, the same text or almost the same text. You know, if, let, let's say an attorney is, you know, submitting a, a motion um, before a particular court. And in doing so, the first several pages of the motion might cite some of the relevant case law from, you know, that circuit or you know, if it's a federal, if it's a federal in federal court or from the Supreme Court. I mean, many multiple different filings in different cases can still reasonably use the same kind of background information uh, on particular motions. So I don't know that I would call that plagiarism if, if they're using you know, prior work from their own firm on different cases. So uh, I don't think reusing text is always necessarily a bad idea as long as it's done in a way that doesn't violate any ethics laws or ethics, ethics customs. Well, let's talk about the classic situation. You and I are both old enough that we remember when the internet started. So that means that we probably have kids or know of kids that are using these things these days. What about a, an assignment from a high school teacher that says, draft an essay on this, and you prompt the uh, language model to give you a result, and you turn it in? Is there a problem with that? Yeah, I've actually, you know, I, I published a, a piece in Scientific American a couple of months ago where I explained why in my class at UCLA School of Law, I tell my students they're free to use ChatGPT in, in their writing. And what I also tell them is that they are solely and fully responsible for anything they turn in under their name. So if it's partially plagiarized, they've committed plagiarism. If it's logically or stylistically inconsistent, then that's on them. If it's factually wrong, that's on them as well. But I do think, again, not, I know not everyone agrees, but I think you know, for, the, for students today, and this is true for high school students, college students, graduate students, these students are going to be practicing, you know, it's extraordinary. If you do the math, and I, 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 I find it stunning every time I do it, but these students can be reasonably expect to be practicing into the 2060s and 2070s, right? Um, that's way down the road. And that, you know, the mid-21st century, this is going to, AI is going to be a tool, and we should teach them to engage with it responsibly and ethically and productively, not to be afraid of it. And that's the philosophy I bring to my teaching, and, and that's what I think the best approach is. I understand some other people don't view it that way. We've seen the robot in court trying to get out of a red light ticket for, uh, as an attorney for a, a particular defendant. Will we see AI take over as attorneys? You know, AI, there's a lot of things AI can't do, right? AI can't make a uh, convincing you know, presentation to a jury. Uh, AI can't motivate a, uh, a team of attorneys to produce their best work. AI can't possibly replicate the human element of client relationships, which is such an important part of, of law. So there's a lot of things that AI can't do. Um, I, I don't think we'll see a day where, you know, a trial consists of, you know, two robots arguing back and forth in front of a judge or, or a jury. And so I don't think we'll see that. But I do think we'll see AI playing an increasingly significant role in, in the information that gets, uh, how documents get produced, um, for, I'll just give you another example. You can imagine in, in a trial, you can imagine an AI engine analyzing the transcript in real time and using the results of that analysis to suggest questions that, say, an attorney might want to ask uh, in a cross-examination, for example. Uh, so I think you'll see AI being used in, in lots of different ways, but not to replace, not to replace the, the human element, uh, which is such a profoundly important part of so many careers, including law. 
I'm just waiting for the political cartoon that comes out with two robots in a courtroom talking to a robot judge. <laughs> yes, that's that would be strange. I don't I don't think we're I don't think we have to fear that. I don't think that's coming anytime soon. What do law firms need to do to get ahead of the curve on AI? I mean, I know that I'm using it for research, I'm using it for writing, and I'm even some marketing techniques. What do you suggest? I, I think it would behoove a law firm to make sure there's somebody in the firm and, and perhaps a few people in the firm who are really tracking uh, this technology and you know understand what product offerings are out there, what product offerings are are in you know on the roadmap going to be coming out soon. It's like any other field. There's going to be a lot of competition, a lot of startups, and a lot of new products. Some of them are going to be really great. Some of them are going to be less great. Some of them are going to be really expensive. Some of them are going to be less expensive. And I think uh, a law firm shouldn't be flying blind in that environment. And I think uh, it just it's it it will be important to have knowledge about the state state of play of these tools, and then to make decisions, obviously, about which tools to adopt because it's you know it's complex. You know, if a law firm's going to adopt a particular tool, there's a cost associated with that. There's a learning curve. There's a switching cost, uh, and yeah, you, know, you want to be you know, prudent in that respect as well because you can you know if, if you're switching tools every thirty days, well, that's going to create all sorts of inefficiencies as well. But I I, I think it would be a mistake to ignore it. You want to track it and and understand how it can. You potentially help your practice. That's 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 what I would do if I were if I were in charge of making these decisions, which I'm not. Other than the class that you're teaching, are you aware of any other law school classes or classes that are out there where people can learn or attorneys can learn how to use AI? Well, there's uh, there's uh, I saw an announcement today for a I think it's a one day program somebody's running about AI and the law, and I would expect that there are people sort of furiously you know spinning up courses and products and things right now. And I, I think we're going to be, you know, and I would imagine venture capitalists are probably investing in new tools. And I think we're going to see a, a burgeoning ecosystem of, of tools and uh, opportunities to learn about these things. And again, it's going to, you know, you, people are going to have to be discerning consumers. It's not all going to be good, uh, but there will be good stuff out there uh, that will, that if you're discerning and find the right stuff will be, a, will be a, provide an opportunity for people who want to learn more about this to, to do so. You know, not that I want to promote any one particular one beyond uh, the ones that I'm using, but your Brookings article mentioned... It mentioned there was a company called Case Text. Case Text. Which has a product called CoCounsel. And I, again, I should emphasize, I have absolutely no financial relationship of any kind with, with this company. So I'm not mentioning them out of some sort of conflict of interest. I just, I just found it interesting in the sense that they, uh, at least according to the news releases, they have some sort of relationship with, um, I guess, with OpenAI or at least access to those, some aspect of those large language models, which, uh, and, you know, we, we all know how good those large language models are. And they've, they've, they've offered a product which they claim can help make legal research much more efficient. I would expect that they are one of what will, what will almost certainly be many companies offering products in this space. But the fact that they're out there already is, is sort of a, an existence proof that this is an area that entrepreneurs in the legal tech space are seeing real opportunity in. Right. Well, John, it looks like we just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts and your contact information. Okay, so anyone who's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm easy to find on the internet. I'm on the faculty at UCLA, and so people could uh, send me an email at, at UCLA uh, if they want to do that. It's v-i-l-l-a at ee.ucla.edu, and that, that's public information. It's, it's, on, it's on the website there. Yeah, so that's how I could be contacted. Great. And 
What are your concluding thoughts? How do you think we should help people to think about this? You know, I think it's a it's an extraordinarily interesting and important development, these latest developments in AI, and not just for the practice of law, but for for society generally. It's going to impact, you know, have an extraordinary impact across many different sectors of society. It's going to be very, very inter- interesting to see how this develops. And I think we, you know, if you, th- if you look at the stunning progress we have seen just since late November, it's hard to even imagine, you know, the the things that we'll see in the next six months, year, five years. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. And I think we'll see some really, really fascinating uh, and important tools that are going to, you know, They'll have obviously some downsides, but we're going to see some enormous benefits from this technology as well. Great. Well, John, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure you having on the show. We'd like to thank Professor John Villasenor from UCLA for participating today. Thank you very much. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. Attorneys in my day used to print out emails and have their secretaries dictate their responses to their secretaries, and then the secretaries type up the response and send the email. Those days have long gone. Attorneys are expected now to be able to function with technology. And if you're still in that category, it's time to get ahead of the curve. Jump in, download ChatGPT4 or look at it online. Start to put in some research queries and figure out how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, perhaps take a class. But as Professor Villasenor says, it's coming and you need to be ready for it. Well, that's it for today's rant on this topic. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.